Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign uh, divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among, all, among whom also were Dionysus, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Well, it's great to be getting into Acts 17 with you. Um, but just before we get there, a bit of community news. Congratulations are in order. Jacob and Sarah, who are here, have brought with them little baby Ailey, who they had last week. So I think it's worth congratulating them. But a double congratulations because it's actually Jacob's birthday today. Yeah. Happy. No, it's, it's, I'm not the one in our marriage who has the gift of singing, so I won't do that to you because I love you. But don't forget to, uh, to, congratulate Jake, uh, to say happy birthday to Jacob and to congratulate them as well. Great to have you guys along with us this week. Um, but this morning, we're going to dive into Acts chapter 17, which is all about the story of Paul and his missionary journey that finds him in a city called Athens, which is still modern-day Athens. And it's a city, although it's an ancient city, is in so many ways like the city in which we live. And so I'm going to pray that as we open God's Word, we'd see that the gospel that was true then is just as true now, and the gospel that was saving lives then is saving lives now, even in this city. So I'm going to pray this morning. Father, we just praise you that you are the God who saves, that you are the one true living God. That while we are tempted to worship idols, false gods that do not save, that you alone really do. That you are the God of grace and mercy, 
and the God who saves us, not because of anything we've done, but because of your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. And so we pray that this morning you would open our hearts and minds to understand your word. And we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, the truth is that everyone, even in a secular city like ours, is religious. That's without exception. From the imam to the guru to the priest to the secular atheist agnostic, everyone is religious because whether or not you believe in a God or the supernatural, everyone believes in a hell and a heaven and everyone is looking for a savior. That is to say, everyone fears a worst possible reality, everyone hopes for a best possible reality, and everyone believes there is something or someone, usually someone, that will take them from one to the other. So if your greatest fear is being alone, that's the vision of hell, and your greatest hope is relational kind of unity, then what are you looking for? The one. That person, the, rom- the romantic partner is the saviour. If your greatest fear is being a nobody and you want to be a somebody, then who are you looking to save you? It's your career. That's the thing that's going to demonstrate that I'm someone, that I achieve things, that I get things done. If your greatest fear is stress or feeling bad or down or even just bored, and therefore your vision of heaven is to feel good all the time, then substances, drugs or alcohol, can be your saviour, the thing that you are looking for, that you will devote your life to, in order to take you from hell to heaven. And it doesn't just cross sort of personal things, it can also be political. This explains really many of our political divisions. It might be the case that if you find yourself on the progressive left, that your fear is that if if the the right get their way, then we're going to live in a dystopia or a hell of intolerance and inequality. And the hope and the heaven for reality is to live in this, this world of perfect tolerance and equality. And the thing that's going to take us there is this political leader or this political party. On the right, the fear is that if the left get their way, then we're going to live in this woke dystopia of moral chaos and where everything is a victim Olympics. And the one that's going to save us is this political leader or this political party who will take us to political heaven. The truth is that everyone worships. The only question is what you worship. Everyone is looking for a saviour, a God who can take you from your worst possible fears to your greatest possible hopes and dreams. And of course, with all of this, you know that you, can, you can't live in the world without a lot of these things. But they can go from being something that's just a part of our life to the thing that we want most, the thing that we want more than anything else. And we know that because of the impact it has on us. You know that something has gone from being just something that you want to something that you worship by the kind of grip that it has on your heart. See, if a relationship isn't really just about a relationship, if your belief is this is the thing that's going to make my life meaningful and significant and give me purpose in life, this is the thing that I live for, and that relationship falls apart, you won't just be upset, which is normal. You'll be completely destroyed. The meaning for life, it seems, has been taken away. Or if your career isn't just a job that you work, or even a job that you really enjoy and believe in and think matters, if it's actually the thing that makes you significant, it's your identity, and you lose it, your whole world falls apart. And when something goes from being just something to a god, or what the Bible would call a false god, an idol, it grips our heart like nothing else. We trust in it for all of our hope and meaning and joy. 
And Paul is going to be speaking to a city that is full of idols, he says, that are trusting things that are not God to be God for them. And his message is the same now as it was then, and it's this, idols kill and God saves. C.S. Lewis probably said it best when he said, idols always break the hearts of their lovers. Whenever something becomes for us a God, something that we trust, what only can be entrusted toward God, our entire lives, our hopes, our dreams, our sense of meaning and significance, our happiness, when that gets invested in something that is not God, it always breaks our heart. Always. Idols kill, but God saves. And so Paul here is going to speak to this city and reason with them because his heart goes out to them because when he gets to Athens, he sees that it's full of idols. Come with me to Acts 17 and sentence 16. It says here, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul here is waiting, we're told, in Athens. And to explain why it is that he is waiting, we just need to go a little bit back in the story to kind of bridge the gap between last week and this week. Last week, he and Silas were in Macedonia in a major Roman city called Philippi. And if you know the Bible, there's a letter to a church in Philippi called Philippians. And he was there, and there they saw many people come to faith in Jesus and the gospel. But then, we're told, the Jews of that city stir up the officials against them. And they say that these men are turning the world upside down. They're saying, there's another king instead of Caesar. You need to get rid of these guys. And so they're driven out to an area called Berea. And when they're in Berea, they meet some Jewish followers who are living away from Jerusalem. And they reason with them, according to the scriptures, that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah, the one to be trusted. And we're told that the Bereans studied the scriptures intently to see if Paul was right. And they believed him. But then the Jewish people who had run them out of town just previously follow them to Berea and again stir up trouble and so they have to leave. And so Paul is sent on to Athens for refuge and he's told to wait there until the others kind of catch up with him. And so while he's in Athens, kind of waiting for the others to come, we're told that his spirit was provoked in him as he saw all of the idols in the city. So here he is meant to be waiting for safety, but he is so provoked by what's happening around him that he can't help but speak. And see, this is the motivation to share the gospel with people. To look around at a city and see that people are worshipping, as if it were God, that which is not God. That there is one true and living God, our Creator, the one who made us and loves us, the one whom we rejected in sin and the one who bridged the gap by sending His Son to die for us, that is the God who is worthy of our worship. And yet so often we give our hearts and our lives to things that are not worthy of our worship. And when Paul sees this in this city, his heart's broken. It says he was provoked. He's like, I have to do something or say something here. Even though his main job here is meant to be just waiting, he can't help but be provoked and to move and to say something. And so we're told he then goes and reasons with people. And it's interesting, the way the gospel goes forward in every culture, is by reasoning it. Paul here doesn't go in to shout everyone down. He doesn't go in to try and get political power and try and bring the gospel in from the top down. We're told that he goes to the synagogue and then to the marketplace and he reasons with people. 
Because if Jesus is the truth, then he can be reasoned about. And he goes in to explain why it is that it's logical and right to believe in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And so he goes in and reasons with everyone. And we'll see in this next section that the results are kind of mixed. Come with me to Acts 17, 18 to 21. It says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So he's gone to the synagogues, and to reason with fellow Jewish people like Paul. But then he goes to the marketplace, and we're told that he meets Epicureans and Stoics. I don't know if you've met any Epicureans or Stoics this week, so to give you a little bit of background as to why that's significant, Epicureans are not that far from a modern secular worldview. Epicureans believed that there was kind of a supernatural world or that there were gods, God or gods, but that ultimately, that they were so far and distant removed from our reality that it was, they might as well not exist. That life really was lived between birth and death. And so all the meaning and significance that was to be found in life is here and now. And Diogenes kind of summarizes the ancient Greek position of the Epicurean like this. Nothing to fear in God. Nothing to feel in death. Pleasure can be attained. Pain can be endured. That's how they lived. There's nothing really to fear in God. The God of gods, if they exist, are so far removed, they might as well not exist. That there's nothing to feel in death, it's kind of the end. Pleasures to be attained, pain can be endured, that's how life goes. They were the kind of, it is what it is, of the ancient world. The Stoics had a different approach to life. Their approach, though, was to avoid pleasure. That actually, that meaning was found in actually resisting good things and in endurance and perseverance. But the one thing that both of these groups had in common, and this is the issue that they have with Paul's message, this is why they call it strange, this is why they call him a babbler, is that neither of them believed in the resurrection. It, we're told here that, that they were confused because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And we know that in the ancient world, people didn't believe in this. Aeschylus, the Greek tragedian, wrote a play in which a character called Apollo says this, when the dust has soaked up the blood of a man, once he has died, there is no resurrection. Many people actually thought it was kind of naive or foolish to believe in a resurrection. Pliny, uh, Pliny the Elder, whom we all know so well, said this, These, talking about these teachings about the resurrection and the like, these are fictions of childish absurdity and belong to a mortality greedy for life unceasing. A plague on this mad sea that life is renewed by death. It's a sweet but naive view. So this was the belief in the ancient world. It's nice that you believe in that, but it's not true. It's a sweet but naive worldview. And so here we're told that they say to Paul, he's babbling, he's going on about foreign divinities, and he's bringing these strange teachings to us. But then we're also told that they want to hear more. And so it's interesting I think often in modern cities like ours, 
There is some belief that if the church just updated its message, it would get more traction. That if we kind of sounded just a little bit more like the culture around us, that that would be the thing that could take the, the church forward into the 21st century. But from the 1st century to the 21st, the thing that's compelling about the gospel is its strangeness. That it's different. If you want to hear the same message, you can hear it in this city over and over and over and over again. But when Paul preaches Jesus and the resurrection and everything that comes with it, all the things about the gospel that offend but also bring curiosity, as, as Paul preaches the full gospel, they're like, huh, this is strange. We've never heard this before and we want to hear more about it. And so they take him to the Areopagus. And it's unclear from the word here, take, whether he was arrested and brought, which has been the pattern if you've been following along in the book of Acts with us, that he was maybe arrested and brought, or whether they were just saying, look, we want to hear more about this, come to the Areopagus and tell us. But either way, we're told that at that time, the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time doing nothing except telling and hearing something new. So this is kind of like the ancient version of the internet. It's just pure novelty, and they're just like, all right, here's something weird and new. Let's wheel him out and see what happens. And so Paul has this chance to have an audience in a foreign city that's never heard of Jesus or the gospel and isn't particularly familiar with Judaism or anything like that. And so here we're going to see how he brings the gospel to an uncomprehending culture. Look what he says in sentence 22. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So interestingly here, Paul doesn't start with the claims of the gospel. He starts where the culture's at. He says, people of Athens, I see that you're really religious. There is a concern among you to work out what life is actually about. And he says, you are religious just like me. He finds the common ground first. So rather than starting with the gospel or even with the scriptures, he starts with where the culture is at. And he says, you, like me, are very religious. I see these statues that you've made. But I did notice one, and one of your statues has on the bottom of it, to an unknown God. So the Greeks would worship many gods, the pantheon of gods. But there was a statue there to an unknown God. It's kind of like a, like a catch-all, like an etc. Because the idea was that, look, the gods ultimately are like, are like giant children. They're petulant. They're easily annoyed. You just, you just don't want to irritate them. And so the idea is that you worship them or you offer sacrifice so that they don't ruin your life forever. But because they weren't sure if they'd really got across all of the gods, there was one statue there that was to an unknown god. So it's like, in case there's anyone we forgot, you know, like at the end of the wedding speech, you know, in case there's anyone I forgot who did something major here, thank you too. Well, that's kind of their catch-all statue. There's to an unknown god. So it's like, we worship all these gods, but here's like the miscellaneous one in case we missed anyone who might get upset with us who has the power to ruin our lives. And so here you notice that Paul finds the common ground. He says, you're very religious, you're seeking after God, just like me. But he also finds the gap in their worldview. He's like, there is an awareness among you that there might be a God that you do not know. And that's his gospel in. 
He's like, here's the gap in their worldview where I can say, hey, you know how you said in your culture that you might not know all the gods? Well, I'm going to introduce you to God. This is his inroad. And this is different to Paul's approach when he's in a Jewish area. I don't know if you noticed that. When he was in Berea previously, he starts with the scriptures because there was a common understanding that the Bible was authoritative. And for those Jewish believers, in order to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they needed to see from the scriptures that that was the case. So that's where he starts in Jewish areas. But now in a Greek city, he starts where they are, with their religions and their beliefs, and he finds a gap. And if Paul was in Sydney, he may have started at something like this. He may have started by finding the common ground and saying, people of Sydney, I see that in every way you are dedicated and searching for happiness. But although we have more freedom to find happiness than any generation previous to us, it seems to be more elusive than ever. What you're looking for, let me proclaim to you now. See, every worldview that doesn't know the true and living God has a gap in it. And so here Paul sees that and he speaks the gospel into it. And look what he says in Acts 17 from sentence 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, on, all on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not that far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. See, now he goes on, having found the gap in their worldview, he goes on to explain God in terms that they would understand. As he, as he speaks here about God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, and not being made in temples made by humans, all of that would have been pretty familiar to the people he was speaking to. That this was their understanding of God or the gods. Of course they're kind of beyond the temples. Of course they're the ones, or he is the one who made everything. But then Paul introduces something new. He says, although people everywhere have reached and searched for God, he is not far. Now this was new to them. Their belief was that the gods were distant and inaccessible. But Paul is saying, no, actually, you can know God and he is near to you. He can be known. And in doing this, he's explaining God in terms that they understand. But also, I don't know if you notice that in there, he quotes their own authors back to them. He says, look, even as some of your poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being. And he says, for indeed we are his offspring. He's quoting back to them authors from their own culture. And here he's explaining God in a way that they would actually understand and be able to connect to. So it is the case that in every culture, there is sin and there is a falling from grace. But because God has made humankind in his image, there will be echoes of the gospel in every culture. And you'll see it in the stories that they tell. Here, Paul picks out the poets from, from that culture and quotes them back to them. But it's still the case today that in the stories that we consume constantly, 
There are gospel cries in them. You might be tempted to write off as unthinking things like the new kind of Marvel series. Or maybe not, I don't know. But I watched it anyway. And you wouldn't think in this particular series that there would be anything, I guess you would say would be you know, kind of deep or getting at like the, the essential kind of heart cries of the human heart. But right towards the end of the series, there are two characters musing on their marriage. And at this point, they decide to quote a poet. And they quote Roman, Raymond Carver, who's a, a pretty mixed character, but an American poet and author who wrote a lot of incredibly depressing short stories. So if you are looking to have a bleak afternoon, grab yourself, <laughs> grab yourself something like So Much Water So Close to Home and, um, and cry yourself to sleep at night. But he wrote, he wrote this, uh, I guess, kind of sweet, very short poem called Late Fragment. And I'll read it for you. It's kind of uh, pitched as like two people talking to each other. It just says, and it's this short, And did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved. To feel myself beloved on the earth. It's an imaginary dialogue between two characters about what the purpose of life is. And the purpose is what? To be loved. To be accepted. Even the middle, in the middle of a pop culture series, there is a heart cry that all people just want to be loved and accepted. Is that not a cry for the gospel? We look for it in all the wrong places. We look for it in relationships that can never fulfill us. We look for it in relationships that even fall apart or even when they don't cannot satisfy that sense that we need an eternal and everlasting love. And yet in the gospel, we have a God who loves with an everlasting love. We have a God whose love is stronger than the grave. We have a God whose love can never be taken from us. Paul is looking at the culture and seeing where it is that people are crying out for the, go- the gospel and finding it in the wrong places. And so after doing this, he calls his listeners to action. Look where he lands. In Acts 17, 29 to 31, we read this. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul introduces a problem. He says, being God's offspring, even as your own culture has said, here's the issue. God is our heavenly father. We're his children, but we've been separated from him by sin. And there is a day when God will judge the living and the dead. And he has appointed one man to judge. And this one man is our hope. And it's Jesus who was raised from the dead. He says, look, false idols will get us to believe that there's a, a heaven and a hell that they can save us from. But it's only the true and living God who can really save us from hell and can bring us into the heaven of relationship with him and life eternal with him forever. False idols bring us false heavens and false hells. But there is a real Savior who can really save. And he proclaims it to be Jesus. And so he lays out in front of them why it is that they should respond to this message. And what happens? Now we are so used in the book of Acts to hearing things like, 
and 3,000 were added to their number that day, and 5,000 were added to that number that day, and they went down and they baptized everyone right then and there. But after having given an exemplary address, and having laid out for us exactly how you would empathize and resonate with the culture and then dissonate and then lay Jesus before them, look what the response is. In Acts 17, 32-34 it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We'll hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among also whom were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Even after doing all of this, after understanding the culture, after observing their religion, after speaking into it with grace and compassion and laying Jesus before them, what happens? They're mocked. I think the sooner as Christians you reconcile with the fact that you could be as empathetic, clever, culturally savvy as you like, but if you eventually lay out the gospel the end result will at some point be mocking. It will still happen. It's not like, oh, if I could just say it in the most clever, personal, you know, with a dash of self-deprecating humor kind of way, then like, if I just get the calibration right, then it will be accepted by all people everywhere and I will be universally liked. It's not going to happen. If Paul couldn't do it, you and I can't do it. That's not how God works through his people. And Paul will say it again and again. God's power is demonstrated in weakness, not through eloquent presentations. He makes every effort to understand the culture, to speak graciously into it, and to speak in words in which he will be understood. And yet, the first response is mockery. And I think as Christians, there are two ways out of this. You can either just never share the gospel and therefore never get any, you know, any hit back from it, or you can share it in a way that is kind of so shouty and angry and self-protective that you don't ever have to feel hurt by rejection because you've already pre-rejected yourself. Does that sort of make sense? You're like, I'm, I'm saying it in such a way that I expect that you already are an idiot who's not going to understand, so I'm just going to yell it at you. And neither of those ways are how Paul approaches it. He speaks clearly, empathetically, but he gives them the gospel and some mock. But also, some are interested some of them say, we want to hear more about this, actually. We want to hear you on this later. And then others actually believe. And we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts, that there are these three responses. Some people reject it outright. Others say, I want to hear a little bit more. And then others hear and believe. And it's our call as the church to hold the gospel out faithfully to an uncomprehending culture, knowing that God will work this way in the modern 21st century, just as he did in the first that some will mock, some will hear and want to know more, but some will believe. And all of you who are here and who trust in Christ are here because God by His Spirit worked in your heart that you might believe this gospel. And someone shared it with you. Someone made the effort to share the gospel, the true gospel, with you, that you might hear and respond, that you might repent and trust in God. And so if you are here and you're not sure where you stand before God, just know that God is as near today as he was in Paul's day. And that even today, you can come to a saving faith in Christ. You can say to God, God, I've been following after idols that have broken my heart over and over and over again. And I want to follow you, the true and living God. 
And if that's you at the end of our time here, I'm going to pray a prayer that you too can echo and pray, knowing that God will hear you and that God is near and that because of Jesus, that anyone can have their sin forgiven and be welcomed into relationship with the true and living God forever. That he's been doing it throughout the centuries and continues to today. And if you're here and you're not sure and you want to know more, you'd say, I'm kind of like the Greeks, maybe not the ones who mocked, but I'm like, I, I want to know a bit more about this. That we'd love to help you in that. We've just finished an Alpha and Christianity Explored course where like, you can dive into the scriptures. And our next one's coming up soon. If you'd like to know about that, we'd love to hear from you. And the best way to do that is just through those white slips. But this is news that's not trivial. And the gospel is true and it's life-changing. And so I'd encourage you, if that's where you are, to pursue it and to see whether or not God is the true and living God, the God that Paul proclaimed and he continues to save today. But if you're here and a follower of Christ, what do you do with this? Because if you've genuinely accepted God, you worship the true and living God, not idols, right? But isn't that strange how easy it is for old habits to stick around and for old idols to come with us into the Christian life? You can think of it like this. When I was maybe 15, I had braces. I know, shocking revelation, right? I had braces. And I remember it was, I mean, a classic like male group of friends thing. When I actually finally got them off, I didn't know I was getting them off. And that day the dentist just took them off and I came to school. And I was like, guys, I got my braces off today. And the first response was, did you have braces? It had been like a year and a half, right? But when I first got them, my sister had had them before me. And she, she gave me some seasoned teenage wisdom. She said, Jeremy, no matter how much it hurts your gums, you are not gonna, you're not going to have what she called brace face, which is where you do that thing where you kind of go around the braces all the time and kind of talk like there's always something in your mouth. And so she's like, you're not going to do that. You're going to cop it because eventually your mouth will get used to it and then you'll be fine from then on. And hearing her say that at the start, I mean, I just took a word because this is my older sister. You just got to go with it. But then I started to see, yeah, I can see how that would happen. Once you get them out, it still feels like they're in there and you still respond to it like, they, like they're in there. It's a strange kind of human habit, isn't it, that we can do that? That even though the reality has changed, we still live almost like it's still happening. When you come to faith in Christ, if you are saved, that is, if God has regenerated your heart to have faith in Jesus Christ, you go from death to life. But we're also told that as we grow and as we become more like Jesus, the old self with its ways are dying and the new self is coming to fruition. And often it's the case that the idols that we formerly worshipped when we're really under stress or strain are the things that we kind of almost instinctively go back to, like an old habit that we have to continually unlearn. And so the question for you if you're a believer here is this. Where are the times where you are tempted to trust in old idols rather than to trust in Jesus? Where are the times or the moments where instead of leaning upon God and His promises and in Him, you're tempted to go back to old ways, to trust in the false gods that never saved in the first place? You think of it like this. David Pallison writes a paragraph on this called X-ray questions, questions that help us to diagnose our own heart and the ways in which we're trusting in old idols. And he says this, What do you think you need? 
In most cases, a person's felt need picture his or her idle cravings. Often what we have called necessities are actually deceptive masters that rule our hearts. They control us because they seem plausible. They don't seem so bad on the surface, and it isn't sin to want them. However, I must not be ruled by the need to feel good about myself, the need to feel loved and accepted, the need to feel some sense of accomplishment, to have financial security, to experience good health, to live a life that is organized, pain-free, and happy. Where is it that you look for refuge, for safety, for comfort, for escape? When you're fearful, what are the things that you turn to? Is it God or is it something else? We're called to worship the true and living God alone and to cast our idols from our hearts. The end of the, the letter 1 John finishes by saying, keep your life free from the love of idols. And he's writing that to believers. That though it's the case that we truly know that God is the true and living God, it's just sometimes the case that old habits die hard. And it's our work to daily bring our lives before God that what we believe to be true might line up with the way that we live our lives. That we might not be trusting in things that are here and now for our final joy, for our ultimate security, for our ultimate hope. May it be the case that our lives would reflect that there really is just one true and living God and that He is the God who really saves and that He is the God who really can be trusted. Let's pray together. Father, you alone are our creator and author, are the one who made us and made the universe. You alone sent Jesus in our place to die for our sin. And to you alone belong glory and honor. And so, Father, we pray that we would trust you completely. Father, I pray for anyone here who is in this moment feeling for the first time the urge to leave idols behind and to follow the true and living God, that you might have mercy on them too, that they may turn to you and find love and forgiveness and grace and all that you might be glorified in your people. Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.